0: This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp.
1: Free trade, free commerce, all of those very important economic reasons the dollar's ascended. There's another factor that why the dollar's ascended, and that is values. The values of, I believe, of free markets, free of government interference, free enterprise, the ability of individuals to conduct their economic affairs as they see fit, and economic privacy and lack of censorship. Those values have made the dollar ascendant and aspirational for many people around the world. In this fight for the future of money, ultimately it comes down to what values are going to be enshrined in either central bank digital currency or non-sovereign digital currency.
2: Money is changing, so where do we go from here? Through high profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join CoinDesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk
1: Podcast Network.
2: And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Christopher Giancarlo, former chairman of the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, senior counsel at Wilkie, Farr & Gallagher, and among other roles, founding principal of the Digital Dollar Foundation, has written a book. And it's about as well-timed a book as one can imagine. He's here today for his second go-round on a Money Reimagined episode to talk about it. The book's called Crypto Dad, a nod to the affectionate nickname that members of the crypto community started giving Chris when, as head of the CFTC he made some regulatory moves that were seen as constructive to the industry, such as the approval of Bitcoin futures, which was somewhat contentious at the time. The book is packed with inside the beltway insights into the sausage making behind regulation. It's also a great primer for understanding the challenges that the US faces as the technology around money goes through a dramatic transformation. And it makes a very strong case for Washington acting proactively to support crypto technology in a way that preserves core U.S. values. It's timely because right now the regulatory conversation around crypto is front and center. Just last week, the first Bitcoin exchange-traded fund was launched after the SEC gave the green light after years of resisting the launch of a Bitcoin ETF. Ironically, the model the SEC approved is built on the Bitcoin futures that Giancarlo's CFTC set in motion. But if that sounds like the SEC, the other agency, is now seen as a friendlier force by the crypto community, think again. Many view with caution the rather harsh tone that the current chairman of the SEC, Gary Gensler, has taken with the industry. There's a lot at stake here, not just for investors, but there's geopolitical issues at stake as well. So it's tremendous that we have the author here himself to speak about all of this. Before we invite him in, though, let's have a quick word with my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So, yeah, I mean, this is a, a great time to have Chris on because, like, We just had the ETFs announced last week. It feels as if uh, we're at this sort of critical juncture right now in terms of, you know, where regulation goes forward. So much talk about what's going to happen around stablecoins, around global coordination in regards to this, CBDCs, everything else, lots on the table.
0: Yeah. One of the interesting things that we've noted before on the show is that, you know, any new innovation doesn't fall cleanly into an obvious regulatory box. By definition, it's an innovation. And therefore, there's often this kind of jockeying to see who ought to have domain or jurisdiction over what the thing is. And of course, that decision has an effect on what the thing becomes. So if you regulate something like a security, Mm -hmm. then next thing you know, you assume it always was a security. And next thing you know, it basically is treated like a security by everybody uh, in the ecosystem. So uh, really hoping that Chris is going to join us today to tell us a little more about how regulation is made, how some of these decisions and choices are made, and walk us through some of the findings in the book so I'm um, great to have you Chris well,
2: well the good thing Thank is not, not actually being no longer at the CFTC, so you can opine on the SEC right. or anything else and so we're going we're going to hold you to account Chris let's do it okay, so I think you know one thing's interesting is you know, in your conclusions here, you come down in favor of a model that I think um I don't, I'm not sure this is where you were coming from when you first found the Digital Dollar Foundation, but it seems as if this hybrid model, with you know letting the private sector do its thing, uh, the, the government do its thing, and working that out in a kind of a more competitive environment, as opposed to the Fed just creating one CBDC, is where you've landed. Why don't we start with that because I think it's one of the most you know contentious and, and hot issues right now, and then we can backtrack into what happened in your days at the CFTC.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Michael. You know. Behind so much of my thinking, both as a regulator and now back in the private sector around this internet of value and how it's transforming everything we know about financial services and the most precious thing of all, which is money itself. I've always approached it from the point of view of what are the social norms? What are the principles of a free society that needs to be brought to bear in this? And that was really my approach to Bitcoin futures at the CFTC. You know there's a lot of pressure on us to stop the development of Bitcoin by actually not allowing Bitcoin futures to go forward. I received calls from regulators around the world saying, if you go forward with Bitcoin futures, you are legitimizing Bitcoin, and that's a threat to the existing global financial structure. Well, my feeling was it's not for me as an unappointed official to legitimize or delegitimize something in a free society people wish to invest in or not invest in it was my role as, as a market regulator was to make sure that the market structure was conducive to people being able to buy and sell and make the choices for themselves as to whether this was legitimate or not legitimate or a value and if, if a value at what price. And so our role was to create a working, transparent, deep, liquid, well-regulated marketplace. And that's what we did. As I mentioned to you, as we were getting ready, I find it at least personally satisfying to see the SEC four years later, after he made that decision basing a new ETF on that. But more broadly to your question, when we think about the development of new forms of money, the private sector has actually been innovating for a dozen years now. And only in the last 18 months or so has most of the Western central banks sat up and said, whoa, what's going on here? Maybe we've got a role in this. And it was 18 months ago at Davos, where we launched the digital dollar project. And our goal with it then and our goal with it now is to make sure the voice of the private sector is brought to bear as central bankers develop central bank digital currency. In my book, I coin a phrase, and, and it's a phrase that's built upon one that was made by French Premier George Clemenceau at the end of World War I. He looked back on the carnage of that war and said, Gosh, war is too important to be left to the general. Hmm. Well, in a similar way, in my book, I say, Money especially digital money, is too important to be left to the central bankers. And and I mean no disrespect to central bankers. What I mean to say is that money is as much a social construct as it is a government construct. And society, having been at this now for 12 years, is forming views as to what what value should be in money. And central bankers need to take account of that as they move forward in developing central bank digital currency.
0: Well, the theme of money as a social construct or as, even as a meme is something we hit on. It's kind of the impetus for this entire show. The origin story of the show is really, Michael, and my realization that that is something that needs to be explored and, and kind of what that means for society. And so you know, I'd love to understand, I, I, I think it's the philosophy underlying regulation is something that's really important, right? And so regulators talk a lot about this need to balance Protection and safety and, and you know, fraud prevention, all these kinds of things that I think as a society, we do agree generally are good values that we want to see upheld with the need to really encourage, I would say, and this is where it gets different, encourage or at least not discourage innovation, right? And of course, yes, exactly. when something, when innovation begins, as I, as I noted earlier, you don't know where it's going to wind up. So, I would be curious to just kind of hear from you a little bit about do you think that that sort of balance is something that different jurisdictions or different agencies take a different posture on? Or do you think that's pretty widespread that everyone's aware that's the balance you're trying to strike and that there is an understanding that the way we regulate a thing potentially cut off its very development and what it could actually become?
1: Absolutely, Sheila. That's such an important point. And it's one that I actually talk a lot about in my book. You know, we tend to look at the first wave of the internet, the internet of information. And how it developed as a model for the Internet of Value. But unfortunately, when it comes to regulation, actually that model doesn't serve well. Internet of information came about into what you might call a regulatory light zone. Because of our First Amendment protection of freedom of speech and similar protections in most of the democratic societies, the first wave of the Internet didn't run into a federal alphabet soup of agencies whose existence is to regulate information. We don't have Ministries of information in Washington, right? And similarly in Europe. And so it developed, and and also it developed in an enlightened environment of a do no harm approach that was adopted by a Democrat White House under President Clinton and a Republican Congress under Newt Gingrich that recognized this innovation needed room to breathe and room to develop. First wave of the internet evolved in a very sort of organic, natural way and in a combination of private sector and public sector. It was the DOD that started the first development of the internet, and then of course the private sector built upon that. So it was a very organic, very democratic, really a a kind of a beautiful unholy mess of innovation that propelled it forward and it took place in a regulatory light zone. Fast forward to today, the internet of value is not going into a regulatory light zone, it's going into a regulatory minefield. And why is that? In our societies we've long had a a presumed a balance role between government and the governed over the protection of things of value. We don't have one banking regulator in Washington, we've got three. We don't have one market regulator in Washington, we've got two, the CFTC and the SEC. And their roles are to protect things of value from fraud, misappropriation, misdisclosure, et cetera, et cetera. You know, whatever one thinks of that, it's it's long enjoyed social legitimacy in the United States and it's similarly true in Europe. And guess what? These agencies, these regulators have their regulatory turf. They have their political backers in Congress, different committees. And so there's an alliance of the regulated and the regulators who are protecting legacy systems. And along comes this new innovation, like all great innovation. It's tremendously disruptive. It's tremendously challenging. And it's running into basically a, a regulatory state that is established, that's legacy. So what do we need to do? You know, taking that as a given, where do we And this, you know, perhaps it tries to answer your question. In my book, what I talk about is in the short term, regulators have to adapt these 90 year old statutes, the 33 and 34 Act for the SEC, the 1936 Commodities Exchange Act for the CFTC. We have to adapt these statutes as best we can. And that's what I tried to do during my time at the CFTC. And chairs have a lot of discretion. And I advocate Four chairs to apply some discretion, to give some wiggle room, to give some room to breathe for this new innovation. And I talk about instances where I exercise regulatory discretion, not to issue subpoenas and go in with enforcement, where I realized that people were struggling with our regulations that were not designed for this innovation. And so we either rewrote our regulations, put out some guidance, did it, things like that, and then gave the marketplace some room to adapt. And then we resumed with the normal enforcement actions. And I think regulators incumbent upon them to do that in the short term. But long term, Congress ultimately needs to speak. And Congress, its job is to voice what is the national policy in this innovation? And I suggest to you, there is a role for the SEC with its investor protection mandate, but that's not the only national imperative and it cannot be left to only that imperative to guide us forward. There's a role for orderly markets so that the marketplace work out value propositions. And that's what the CFTC does very well. But there's also, I think, a national imperative in innovation. We've got a great financial system, but it's one of the oldest on the planet. It's creaky. It's filled with legacy processes. It's inefficient. It's costly. And it's very exclusive. It excludes a good chunk of our population. Because it is so identity specific. And if you don't have identity, you basically can't work in it. And so we can do better. And if we view this innovation, not so much as as so many in Washington do, which is a challenge and a threat, but view it as an opportunity to create a faster, less expensive, more inclusive financial system. I think if Congress can express that as a national goal and instruct our regulators to treat it such, then I think we can do a lot better than we're doing, I think, in the present environment.
2: So, Chris, the, there's a phrase that I picked up in reading this that you use called Russian legal roulette, and you, you described it as this, this problem of policy by enforcement, and it seems to describe the exact opposite of what you're getting at here, right? That we need Congress to speak. We need to lay down clarity about what we're doing as a society, and that becomes the framework in which how we address these things. And we've, on this show, we've talked about the internet and the, early, you know, the laws of, of the mid-90s and how important they were in that process, right? But in this like, current absence, we're stuck with this policy by enforcement. I mean, is that really is that a fair criticism? I mean, the, the folks were just saying that we need greater clarity from the SEC right now, and it still feels ambiguous. Or do you think that there is greater clarity coming from the SEC right
1: now? No, I, I don't, quite frankly. And I don't mean to criticize any given agency, but, but look at it from an innovator's point of view, right? They're trying to innovate with with new tokens, with new abilities to transfer value, and and all they know from the SEC is we'll call it as we see it. But there is no, there's no real good guidelines. But there's no bright line tests. There's the 1946 Howey test. I mean, come on, we certainly can do better than that. If we're going to innovate, let's not try to have innovators guess uh, which instruments the SEC might take enforcement action on or not. And again, I'm not here to criticize a fellow agency with which I worked very, very well, but we've got a national interest in being a leader in this innovation. Let's, let's back up for a second. The United States was the leader of the first wave of the internet and how much value was created, how much convenience was created, how much efficiency was created for society. It's hard to measure, it was extraordinary. And yet for some reason, we sat out the second wave of the internet, the, the, the internet of things, which is dominated by Chinese 5G technology. We didn't engage in that and we lost out on the value enhancement, the wealth creation that that could have created for a lot of our innovators in society. And now we've got a new class of American innovators that are trying to experiment with this third wave of the internet, the internet of value. And the best they can get is wait and see how, whether we sue you or not, and, and look at the 1946 Supreme Court case and guess whether what you're doing is, is legal or illegal. I mean. Uh, Look, I'm not here, again, to criticize the SEC. They're doing best with what they have. But we really do need some mature guidance on this. You know, and this is where I got the name name "Crypto Dad" because I said to to the Senate Banking Committee, we owe it to the innovators. We owe it to this generation to get this right, to lay down clear guidelines and clear rules so that we can be a leader in this innovation. I, I really feel that we can do better than we're doing now. And I think we owe it to our innovators and our fellow c- citizens. And ultimately there's a generational issue here. I think we owe it to the, to the generation that's out there doing extraordinary work to give them at least some guidelines and some regulations that, can be, that are, that are crypto appropriate that they can build upon.
0: Quantstamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for Quantstamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company. Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers. You know, so let's talk a bit about the politics here, because one thing you said that's so interesting to me is the fact that the internet came of age, if you will, or came into being during a time when you had a Democratic president and a Republican Congress. And yet there was really this pretty broad spread consensus that this was something we needed to kind of nurture and allow to develop, you know, to the points that you made, right? Why is crypto such a hot potato? You know, like, why are we not seeing the same sort of um, convergence around the approach here?
1: Look, I really do think it's part of the fact that Washington has such a big stake in a legacy structure. And it's not just Washington. It's big finance. It is big technology. I think there is, there's a lot of inertia in our current system. And you know what? Given its due, it served very, very well. The dollar's ascendancy, the role of the the Federal Reserve, the payment processes are in place. They worked really well in the latter half of the 20th century. Problem is, time is moving on. Technology is moving on. The fact that you can send a photograph around the world in a second along with a text message, and it still takes three to five days to send money around the world at the cost of five to seven percent, Technologically, we've already passed the point where that's not necessary. That's only necessary because of legacy infrastructure. The new infrastructure is right there in front of us. And yet there's a lot of inertia built into that legacy infrastructure. There's a lot of rent uh, collection in that legacy infrastructure. There's a lot of jobs built upon that legacy infrastructure jobs in Washington jobs on Wall Street, jobs all around the world. You know, Wall Street and Washington are a lot closer than people recognize. There's a lot of rhetoric that presents a lot of antagonism between the two. There's less than you think. There's a lot in common. And again, you know, I, I come from the street. I've worked in Washington. I'm not trying to throw brickbats. I'm just saying what there is because I'm saying, come on, fellow citizens. Let's not let that legacy infrastructure hold us back from what we've traditionally done so well which is building the new structures of the future. Let's not do what great nations have done, which is they reach a pinnacle and then they don't move forward. We need to move forward and be unafraid to move forward.
2: So all great stuff, Chris. I was just thinking when you mentioned the dollar as ascendancy and, and that role, and just wondering if we can unpack that a little bit, because this debate over stable coins versus CBDCs, I thought Randall Qualis's assessment was really interesting. You know, the idea that we should, that possibly by not building a C- CBDC and therefore like just building, you know, the stable coin model where private money would sit on top of this was actually the way in which the dollar's domination of the world would get even bigger because now you had this, this one version of technology, which is the dollar itself, a social technology right. that is accepted socially everywhere being even more accepted. And so sort of the, the U.S., Stamp on on global society becoming even bigger, but the resistance to that I think speaks to what you were just talking about, which is that to get there you actually have to give up on the gatekeeping powers that you know Wall Street and the regulatory framework around the dollar as the world's reserve currency under the that old infrastructure you're talking about becomes this powerful you know wedge with which policy is made and and everything else in terms of Global power. There's a lot at stake there in terms of how the United States exercises power, and there's there's two types of power. some like soft power and hard power, both financial, but in a certain way. Can you unpack that further? And like, sure. where, where do you, and how do we actually get beyond that very difficult dilemma, almost? You know,
1: there's a lot of what Randy Quarles is saying that I agree with. There's some that I don't agree with. I subtitled my book "The Fight for the Future of Money." I really think we are going to have a fight for the future of money. And some of the contestants in that fight are pretty asynchronous. You're gonna have nation states in that fight, both democracies and non-democracies. You're gonna have central banks in that fight, some, some major central banks and some up and coming central banks. You're gonna have big tech in that fight. You're gonna have big finance in that fight. And, and they all have, a, 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 I think, a role to play. And, and my book is designed to bring a new entrant into that fight that are not engaged and that is free people in a free society. Because what I'm really worried about is the values that got the dollar to where it is today. And ultimately, once you strip away the strength of the US economy, stability of the dollar, free trade, free commerce, all of those very important economic reasons the dollar's ascendant. there's another factor that why the dollar's ascendant, and that is values. The values of, I believe, of free markets, free of government interference, uh, free enterprise the ability of individuals to to conduct their economic affairs as they see fit and economic privacy and lack of censorship those values have made the dollar ascended and aspirational for many people around the world in this fight for the future of money ultimately it comes down to what values are going to be enshrined in either central bank digital currency or non central banks non-sovereign digital currency you know big tech is a censorous of activities as a restrictive government regime. Big tech is as eavesdropping uh, and surveilling of activities as is a, a non-democratic regime. So the question is going to be, in a democracy or in a non-democracy, what are going to be the values of money and who are going to be in control of those things? Is it the digital money of the future going to be something where our activities are surveilled and perhaps censored? or is it going to be one where we enjoy what we expect to enjoy in fiat money? and that is economic privacy, at least for legal transactions. I, for, I'm never saying that illegal transactions should not be surveilled and punished, et cetera, but for legal transactions. This is the fight for the future money and they all have a role to play. Now, um, what I said, I agree with Randy Quarles in some respects and some I don't. I do fully hope that there will be non-sovereign competitors for digital money, if for no other reason to keep the sovereign issuers of digital money honest. Ultimately, everybody wants our information and the best way to prevent that from happening is competition. I'll give you an example. If we succeed in getting Fourth Amendment protections of privacy built into a digital dollar, then I could actually see myself using my digital dollar to conduct transactions that I want kept private. Because if we do it right, the government should not be able to unmask my identity for legal activities. And so for private transactions, I may use my digital dollar. For transactions that I'm happy to have public, I might use a, a Libra, a Facebook coin. For example, I'm a, I'm a musician. When I have nothing to do, I look at guitars online. I know it's pretty nerdy, but that's what I do. And you know, what? if somebody wants to pay me for knowing which guitars I look at, in fact, give me a discount when I buy one because they have that information, that's fine. So you can imagine like a jigsaw puzzle effect to transferring money. You may use private rails for certain things. You may use public rails for certain things. You may use sovereign rails for some things. And I think that's the best way of keeping everybody honest. My worry is if you have a big tech monopoly, as we do now in information, then you can have censorship. You certainly will have information leakage. If you have a sovereign monopoly, as China, by shutting down Bitcoin and all crypto, They are basically saying the Communist Party has a monopoly on money in China. Surveillance will be part of the design elements of that. And again, I'm not here to play geopolitical politics. It's the same the world over. What are gonna be the values in digital money, whether it's sovereign or non-sovereign? To me, that's the ultimate thing. And I was talking to Senator Lummis recently, and she made an excellent point, and it's a point, Michael, you and I talked about. If the United States, and this is a big if, if the United States encodes in a digital dollar Proper Fourth Amendment protections for information, it will be the killer monetary instrument in the world, and others will then have to adopt privacy as well to compete with it. It'll be the best thing we could possibly do. On the other hand, if we don't do that right, it'll be the worst thing we can do because everybody will take their cue from the digital dollar, non sovereign money as well as sovereign, and our information will not be private. So, this is the battle. I talked about all the combatants. The battle to me. Is at the end of the day, it's all about the values that are written into design features of this new digital money. And we all have to fight to make sure that privacy and censorship resistance is part of it, whether it's offered by big tech, small tech, governments, et cetera. To me, it all comes down to values. And I think you and I talked about this at Davos a year and a half ago, and, and nothing in my research and my work and my writing has changed my view that it all comes down to values at the end yeah. of the day.
0: I, mean, I would agree with that, Chris, and you've activated like Lawyer me, right? So here we go. you know, and so one thing you said I thought was really interesting i want to I wanna jump on, which is you know you you said that you support certainly uh, illegal transactions or remain illegal, you know, et cetera. However, of course, who defines what's legal and illegal, and that is not a static state that can change over time. And certainly it is policymakers who decide what is legal and what is illegal. Similarly, when it comes to Fourth Amendment, that's hardly evenly applied, as we know. as we well know, you know from any work that we've done in criminal justice or any of us are aware. There isn't an, a, an obvious or even application to how even, even the most uh, well-intentioned value statements get enshrined in actual practice. And so I guess what I was going to ask you questions about China, but I think we kind of touched on that already. But when it just comes to actual physical cash as being the ultimate method, the ultimate mechanism for a private exchange, what do you make of that? I mean, how there really is no ability for any digital currency, I really think, regardless of design, to compete with physical cash. So how do you think about that?
1: Well, I, I agree. But what if governments get, a, get rid of physical cash? Once they've launched their digital money, it's working, people find it convenient, they can use it online, which you can't do with physical cash. And then the next step is say, OK, over the next five years, we're going to get rid of physical cash. And now you have no alternative. So let's talk, though, about what makes physical cash so great. Mm-hmm. What makes physical cash so great is that it's a token. And tokens are written into human DNA. They go back to the mists of time when people first used shells or clay tablets or, or metal coinage or ultimately paper money invented by the Chinese. The beauty of a token is you need to verify only the thing itself. You don't need to know the identity of who you're dealing with. So you go into a shop today with a $20 bill to buy a sandwich. You don't need to give your identity to the shopkeeper. You don't need to tell them where you bank. You don't need to tell them what's in your bank. They just need to verify the token. That worked really well in human history until its major shortcoming was discovered. And that is that it's effectively a local instrument. Once you go further from the locale, once you are not physically present yourself to present it, The value proposition of tokenized money went away. It's a local instrument. And therefore, in Europe in the 1600s, they came up with another system, the banknote system. Put your Dutch Gilder tokens in the vault of the Bank of Amsterdam and we'll issue you a banknote. You can go to Venice now and get Venetian ducats and trade in Venice. And the banknote system worked really well and over the last 500 years, it's taken over the world. 90% of transactions today are in the banknote system, account-based finance. And our AML, KYC, anti-money laundering, know your customer, illicit conduct protection system is all based upon that banknote system. But guess what? There are three major shortcomings in the account-based system. One is it's exclusive. It requires identity in every case. You go into that shop with a credit card, with a check, with PayPal, with Venmo. Somebody somewhere has got to know who you are, where you bank, and how much is in your bank account. Otherwise, that system don't work. Guess what? If you don't have identity, you can't use that system. In the United States, we're now very much more aware than we were before that 5% of our fellow citizens are underbanked or unbanked, largely because of lack of identity, either by choice or by circumstances. And in the world today, a billion and a half people or so do not have identity out of 8 billion people. That's a big percent of our fellow global citizens that cannot use the existing banknote system. So it's exclusive, identity only. It's slow, three days to cash a check in the United States, seven days to send money around the world. It's faster to, if you need to move money from here to London to put it in a suitcase and grab a flight at, to Heathrow than it is to send a wire transfer. So it's, it's exclusive, it's slow, and it's expensive, five to 17% to send remittances around the world that falls on the most vulnerable parts of our population. So the banknote system has got its shortcomings, even though that's what we use today. So here's the beauty of digital money to, in a token form. It solves those four shortcomings. It solves the local nature of the old physical token money, and it so- solves the exclusivity, the slowness, and the latency of our banknote system. It's really very revolutionary, but boy, does it destroy a lot of latency businesses. Boy, does it destroy a lot of bank p ls Boy, does it undermine you know, work that the, the Senate Banking Committee has been doing for the last 30 years. And so it's really disruptive, but it is so potentially positive. We need to view this as an opportunity to modernize our financial system and not as, unfortunately, so many people are doing, as a challenge to everything they've known. And I'll just end with a quote from my, my favorite author, Douglas Adams, who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide <laughs> to the Galaxy. <laughs> you know, he, you know he, he said that for most people, you know, anything that was invented between the age of 17 and 35 is so cool, it's mm-hmm. such a r- remarkable thing, and such an opportunity to build a lifetime career. But for anything that's invented after you're 35 is risky suspect and needs to be suppressed. And I think that's a lot of what's going on here with cryptocurrency. I think there's a real generation gap, as big as the generation gap I grew up with, that was a generation gap over social issues like civil rights and the Vietnam War. Today we're facing a generation gap, but it has to do with who can you trust? You trust the bank on the corner with its branch bank, Who you know most? You ask a twenty-year-old to step foot in a branch bank, and they're looking around like, "What is this place? I've never been somewhere like this before." Or do you trust you know anonymous algorithms that use a consensus model to establish trust? And I think that the latter is generationally much more attractive today for young people than than is our old legacy bank system.
0: You know, such a funny thing. I've got a friend who actually bought a payphone and installed it in their house so their children can see. Look, you put the coin in, and then you pick the thing up, and the, their kids are like, "What the heck are you talking about?" You know. So I talk a lot about how I'm, I think I'm raising crypto-native children uh, as a digital, right. as a digital native. I'm raising crypto-native children, and I do think a lot of the ideas we have around, uh, even to go further in terms of values around who ought to own information and who ought to have control over what is done with the information are really going to shift, and they're shifting pretty rapidly. And that's in part due to activism. It's in part due to hyper-awareness. It's in part due, I think, to the pandemic and to people becoming increasingly digital, even as they were already partially digital becoming even more digital in their engagements and their social engagements and all kinds of professional engagements, whatever else it might be. But to get back, I know you didn't want to go into a whole geopolitics thing, but let's let's talk a little bit and spend a little more time on China because certainly I think the moves China makes uh, have massive effects, whether it's Digital Yuan, whether it's the banning of Bitcoin, uh, whether it's the mining moving. We talked about this in an episode a couple of weeks ago, uh, leaving very quickly, packing up from China and moving to Kazakhstan, Russia, the United States, other places. So, how do you, as wearing your former regulator hat, right? Like, how do regulators in, let's say, non China, so not necessarily just the US, but in other countries, see something like what's going on in China with its massive market, with its centralized approach with its, its speed and efficiency to get things out there. What is the signal that, that other regulators and other jurisdictions take from China?
1: Well, I'm not sure they're all taking the signal that I think they should be taking. I think there's a underestimation of the magnitude of what China's looking to do with its ECNY, its digital yuan. I think the misunderstanding is it's just about digital payments. I think it's much, much bigger than that. I think what China views as digital currency as a way to to serve as an operating system for the world's first fully networked digital economy, and that's very powerful, what do I mean by that? Well, the first wave of the internet, that internet of information created what is today pretty much a fully networked information system. I can go from this, I'm, I'm looking at you right now from my laptop, I can go from this, Sheila, to reading an article you wrote with a few clicks of my mouse. From that, I can look at a a podcast that you and Michael have done. I can then go to a New York Times article. I can find a research paper that you've done. I can research a subject without ever leaving the four corners of my desktop. And yet in our financial system, we've got a series of silos. If I wanna trade a share of Microsoft and New York Stock Exchange, I talk to a stockbroker. But if I wanna put a hedge on an oil trade, I've gotta go to a futures commission merchant at the CFTC. If I want to do a commercial loan transaction, I'm talking to another intermediary. We're talking about silo after silo after silo with no digital networking. Now, we have an informal network of, say, the dollar zone where the dollar's influence. I'm using dollars in those different silos, but the dollar doesn't really serve as a digital network. What China views, at it's ECNY, as the key operating system that allows you to go from financial transaction, a financial transaction, financial transaction, without all the silos, which means without all that cost, with all that latency. So you take the world's fastest growing economy, and now you take out that cost, that latency, that lag, and that will drive that economy into hyperspace or hyperdrive. I mean, it is amazing how they are breaking through this this silo effect that we in the West were so squeamish about that. And yet, how powerful that will be. Now, I never overestimate a competitor's ability to execute on a plan, but the audaciousness of the plan is stunning. And we don't seem to even perceive the opportunity in the West, which is what so troubles me. Mm -hmm. Let's understand the, the ambitions here. And if we can do even half of it and use what we do well in the West, which is that creative energy and project management, we could build something equally great. But I'm afraid we're not appreciating the magnitude of what they're trying to do.
2: I Chris, it's such a good point. I'm so so glad you raised it because you hear the the debate over China and its digital currency tends to focus on the privacy issue, which is a legitimate concern, right? And then the rest of it is just dismissed as, oh, it's not really a blockchain or whatever, you know, and therefore. But the sheer efficiency gains that come from incorporating everybody across, as you well put it, all these silos and creating that common zone is incredibly powerful. And especially if you translate that into, you know, the, the Belt and Road project with the 65 different countries and so forth. This is the real threat to the United States is not a technology that does X, Y, or Z. It is that China is going to leapfrog so quickly simply because it has all that efficiency baked into this new system. And that's where I think there's an absolute blind spot. So I'm so glad you right. said
1: that. Yeah. And and Michael, you know, people say, oh, you know, the privacy issue, but guess what? There are plenty of people in this world that will trade privacy for efficiency. Uh, yeah. And because we do it ourselves, right? How mm. many of us know that we're being eavesdropped when we shop, but we're giving that information away simply for the convenience of it, right? And yeah. that's why, again, I wrote my book to my common citizen to say, folks, governments and big tech are gonna give you digital currency and it's gonna be so efficient, you're gonna love it, but don't give away the hard earned gains in liberty. Don't give away your privacy. We need to stand up and say privacy, is an essential value. Yes, we want the convenience. Yes, we're gonna use this, but we demand our economic liberty. We demand our privacy. And how dare you censor what we do with it as long as it's legal? And it goes to Sheila's point. Sheila, if we're not afraid to go from an account-based system to a token system, we still can do a great job of finding illicit conduct. Why? Because if we don't have to establish identity in the first step, but we use new technologies of pattern recognition and big data analysis, we can actually find patterns of illegal conduct and then relying on the pseudonymity of blockchain-based systems, we can work our way back to identity. So instead of starting with identity in the very first step of every transaction, buying a sandwich, why do I need to give my identity to the shopkeeper when I'm buying a sandwich, but I do if I write a check or if I use a debit card, why not do that on a token basis? And if in fact, it wasn't a sandwich I bought, but a bag of cocaine or whatever, work your way back on a pattern recognition base to then find out who I was and who the shopkeeper was. So what troubles me is when I hear, well, AML KYC, as if the current manifestation of AML KYC needs to be the all-time manifestation of it. We can do AML KYC in a non-account-based system and probably get better results. Last point, AML KYC has, in its present form, has a 90% false positive rate. Surely we can do better than that. That can't be the benchmark of what we yeah. need to maintain. It, it's really regulating activity
0: versus regulating people. Now, again, I will point Trust to them. many social science you know, studies and other things that have shown that patterns of behavior of certain kinds of transactions are often racially coded or geographically coded or whatever it might be. So you can't really avoid deliberate malevolence if you know if that's if that's what's, it's what's intended.
1: And identity systems though also have racial bias as of well course. Uh,
0: right I, I take that as i take that for granted yes yeah. so, <laughs> so your point
1: is, is the right one in other words let's, let's get the design elements right by being conscious of those biases mm-hmm. right up front so we design systems that don't encode those biases that actually encode the a right approach of a, a real you know equitable approach
2: it's like the, this obsession with a koc aml is if KYC-ML is the end goal, right? As of, exactly. you know, The end goal is to protect kyc No, that's the tool we've been using and not very well to do this. Yeah, so I think, I think I really, really appreciate you saying this, Chris. I know you've got a limited time. I just want to throw one quick last thing at you. And that was like, you talk about exclusion, which is something that we talk about a lot. And it certainly gets to what we were just talking about in terms of kyc AML and you know, the, the global identity challenges around that. There's another level of exclusion that I think is really pertinent to the current regulatory framework, which is to say, participation in investment opportunities, right? And when we've got like the whole accredited investor laws, you know, $200,000 or a million dollars in assets. And and there's also like an exclusion aspect that comes to digital awareness and the digital divide and so forth. And so of course, Bitcoin ETFs are popular because there's a lot of folks who can now get into them. But I mean, if you read my column last week, it seems like, you know, futures-based ETF, it's just hurting the little guys that the SEC is supposed to be protecting because the role is just going to be so detrimental to their return. If they just own Bitcoin in spot, they might get some volatility, but they're ultimately going to come out far better ahead. How do we get our regulatory agencies to think about this idea that, okay, we should encourage broader participation. And really, a lot of our protective systems are just creating a haves and have not divide here.
1: Absolutely, Michael. In fact, it's one of the points I talk about uh, in the latter chapters of my book. I think that investor protection has a seat at the table of a proper regulatory regime for crypto, but it cannot be the investor protection approach of the current SEC. And the one area I am critical of them in my book is to say, the SEC itself has got to evolve its thinking on investor protection. It cannot be the present form that says investor protection is to protect investors from the very opportunities that they reserve for accredited investors, which are basically rich or knowledgeable, knowledgeable, experienced investors. The beauty of crypto is a whole generation of interest they've brought into the financial system that that Wall Street squandered decades ago, that unfortunately, big banks have squandered decades ago. And yet crypto has brought a young generation, has brought 20-year-olds into the financial system, that wouldn't set foot in a branch bank that don't have online brokerage or even you know old fashioned brokerage accounts. Crypto has created a democratizing impact, an excitement that I haven't seen in, in financial markets in a long time. Let's not superimpose that the SEC's approach to investor protection that says you know unsophisticated people stay out, you know non wealthy people stay out, you know uh, marginalized people stay out. We're reserving these investments for big shots. That we got to do better than that, and so. Yes, there's a role for investor protection, but it's gotta be a, a more contemporary, modernized, forward-looking investor protection and not the old investor protection that we've come to know, sadly. And, and, and to his credit, my, my former colleague, Jay Clayton, this was a primary focus of him when he went to the SEC. Unfortunately, um, a lot of other things came in the way, but it was the right instinct. And I think we can do better than the SEC's current approach to investor protection.
2: All righty, Chris. Like, so you—you uh, you said at some point you quoted one of my favourite authors, Douglas Adams, and his his reference from seventeen to thirty-five. And if anything comes after that, you know, it's, it's something you want to quash and, and kill. I think you've shown that you're sort of maybe eternally young here. Uh, hopefully, not prejudging your age. I'm pretty sure you're somewhat close to mine, maybe around that age. I think. The fact that the three of us are able to be as passionate as you are about this, I think, is a sign that, you know, you're young at heart if that's the case. And so thank you for bringing that passion. I think you've earned your crypto dad title pretty well. It was a tremendous conversation. I wish we could have gone on longer. Thank you so much for doing this again. We'll have to get you back for a third visit at some point. So thank you so much.
1: Third time's a charm. We'll make it happen. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Sheila. It's been great being with you.
2: And thanks, everyone, for joining us on Money Reimagined. We're back again next week for another edition. Please come back and have a listen then. Bye for now.
0: You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Christopher Giancarlo. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Annabee Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.